Good morning. morning. Great news. In the next half hour, you are going to learn all of the answers that you need to transform all of the conflicts in your life. (laughs) Sorry, I just lied. (laughs) You will probably be left with more questions than answers. But hopefully even those questions will help you to start to transform the conflicts in your life. So conflict transformation is a paradigm shift, which according to Google is defined as a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumption. In this platform, I'm going to talk a bit about some of the ideas related to conflict transformation, and then we're going to get into specific examples. Shayla and Shirley. Shayla, you want to come up here? (laughs) You're supposed to be up here. (laughs) Shayla and Shirley have agreed to talk about uh, a conflict that they each have in their life. And I'm going to talk some about my own experiences with conflict. It's been pretty difficult to figure out how to fit something so big into a little less than half an hour, but I'm going to do my best. So I spent the first 30 years of my life as someone who was extremely avoidant of conflicts. That all changed for me when I started graduate school. I chose a master's program which had an interdisciplinary major, and for the first two weeks they put us all in the same class, which was an overview and practicum of how to work in groups with people who were very different from each other. That was when I first was introduced to the concept that there are actually different ways to approach conflict, And that is when I learned that my way of approaching conflict thus far was to back slowly away from it unless I had no choice. So in thinking back on my life up until that point, I realized that running away from conflict was really not serving me that well. Even though I was pretty terrified of the idea, I decided to spend the nine months while I was on campus trying to move toward conflict. That was a process of learning to see conflict as an opportunity and many, many chances to practice. At the end of that time, I had decided to dedicate my life to conflict transformation because not only had I learned that such a thing was possible, I had experienced it several times. I realized that approaching someone who you're experiencing a conflict with and talking with them about it is one of the more profound ways to elicit the best in each other. In the title of the platform, I talked about changing frames. This is yet another way to talk about paradigm shifts. It's changing the way you look at things. One of the frames I'm going to talk about changing is language. I'm going to use some words differently in this platform than you might be used to hearing them used. And I'm going to define them as I go along. In the world of conflict transformation, conflict isn't hitting, killing, or war. Those are types of direct violence, which I'm going to come back to shortly. Violence is a common response to conflict, and it's evidence that a conflict exists. So then, what is conflict? A really simple way to think about it is it's a perception that people's goals are incompatible. Conflict is evidence that you have a relationship with someone and that something in that relationship is not working for at least one of you or could work better for at least one of you. Some examples. 
Your coworker, who shares an office with you, likes the temperature 10 degrees higher than you do. Your spouse and you can never agree on how to load the dishwasher. Your brother needs you to help pay to send your parents on the cruise that you agreed to, but you've lost your job. Your local police department has shot someone in your neighborhood, and the neighbors are demonstrating to get justice. So then if those are conflicts, what is conflict transformation? In simplest terms, it's figuring out what is underneath the conflict. It is a process, not an answer. What are the circumstances that resulted in the conflict, and how can they be changed? What needs, desires, and aspirations are not currently being met? What are the people hoping will happen after they achieve their goals? Are there ways to satisfy people's needs other than through what they say they have to have? Do I really need an iPhone to communicate and connect with my friends, or could I use something else? This requires creativity, the process of asking and trying to answer these questions. It has become a cliche to think outside of the box. The box is the frame, the way things have been. If you keep doing the same thing the same way, you can't expect different results. This is true. This is also when we come back to violence. People's individual attempts to be creative in response to conflict are vastly complicated by the context in which we live. We live in a world with a history and a present that is shaped by violence. What I learned in history class in high school is basically a long series of wars. This is the story that we tell about ourselves and our world. It is hard, as one person, to transform all the conflicts in your life because we exist in a world which doesn't try to transform conflicts as a whole. Someone can't just walk into their job as an administrative assistant in your average multinational corporation and say, hey, we're doing things that are exacerbating conflicts and causing violence in the world. Let's do things differently and expect to be listened to and to affect changes in, the, in their environment. So then what can we do? One thing we can do is learn more about the dynamics of conflict and how it can result in violence. Understanding that helps us to change the dynamics and to prevent violence. I'm not going to be able to go into this very deeply here, but immediately after the platform, well, at 12.45, there is a workshop, and we're going to be talking about this more in depth. One definition of violence, I'm going to prepare you. This is kind of long. It has a lot of words. One definition of violence is that it consists of actions, words, attitudes, structures, or systems that cause physical, psychological, social, or environmental damage and or prevent people from reaching their full potential. That's a pretty big definition, isn't it? Anything that can prevent people from reaching their full potential. When I've shared this definition before, which is not my definition, by the way, uh, I use it, I love it, but it, I didn't come up with it, I have encountered some pushback. I don't know exactly why it is, but I think one of the reasons is that if we think of violence as anything which can prevent people from fulfilling their full potential, 
then that means that you and I are walking around committing and being impacted by violence all the time. And that is overwhelming. I think that this is something we must come to terms with if we are to create a peaceful world and not just a temporary truce between war. Just as I, as a white person working against racism, have had to understand that I was raised in a racist society, and I absorbed that for so much of my life. I have to understand the ways in which I perpetuate racist systems in order to be able to change them. So too, do I need to understand the other types of violence that maybe I didn't even think about as being violent before that I perpetuate. Johann Galtung, a pretty famous guy in the field of conflict transformation, diagrammed violence in the shape of a triangle with the point at the top. So at the top is direct violence or personal violence. That's the hitting and bombing and killing that I mentioned earlier. So that's the behavior that you can see. It's visible and obvious. One of the bottom corners is what's called structural violence. It's less visible, and it's built into society. An example is the disproportionate number of people of color in prison. There is a self-reinforcing cycle that makes police decide to patrol far more often in poor communities of color. And not surprisingly, they find more things to arrest people for than the affluent white communities that they aren't patrolling. And the other point on the bottom of the triangle is cultural violence, which are the attitudes and the ideas that support the other two types. The idea that people of color are more likely to commit crimes is what keeps those police patrolling where they always have. These are just examples, and things are far more complicated than I'm painting. But the idea is that the triangle is like an iceberg. All we can see is the tippy top, the obvious acts of violence that that result in blood or people dying. But there's far more uh, in the other two, the cultural and structural violence, that we don't think about as much or get to see. There's a tendency, which many people attribute to human nature, but I believe is actually a long, long history of practice, to see things in terms of opposing sides, good and bad, us and them. It is the way that our world is structured, both physically and in in an internalized mental structure. Physically, we have borders that prevent people from moving freely around the world. The idea of relatively static international borders has only existed for a short time in human history, yet they are talked about and seem unchangeable. This is a way of creating in-groups and out-groups. In the U.S., we have an adversarial legal system, which decides if someone is guilty or not guilty, with no room for nuance. Our language, in so many ways, creates in-groups and out-groups. Who do we mean when we say we? And do we think about who feels excluded from that, even within hearing distance? What words am I using today that I haven't even thought to try and define because the people I talk about this stuff with already know them? There's actually a lot of evidence for cooperation across differences. You just need to look at a natural disaster for an example. 
How many people have volunteered and donated to help those in Texas affected by floods? People risk their own lives to help others, even strangers. If you're able to set aside the dualism, the us and them, and see things from a different frame, we are all affected by each other, we all affect each other. And it makes sense that if we are able to work together, then we will be better off. The problem historically, at least in the European and American history that I'm more familiar with, has been that there are powerful people who benefit by people not being able to work together. Divide and conquer is a time-tested strategy, one that is based in violence. This tendency towards dualism also relates to another main contributor to violence, dehumanization. Seeing other people as less than human has been the basis for much violence in the world. Being taught to see other people as less than is a process which makes it easier to do more violence to them. Whether it is a political figure who fundamentally opposes your own politics, a celebrity who you just can't stand seeing on television, your boss's boss's boss, your soon-to-be ex-spouse, our culture encourages us to simplify others, to overlook their complexity, to only focus on one particular aspect of who they are at their whole being. It is possible, for example, to see Rush Limbaugh as a complex human with inherent worth and find everything that he says in public abhorrent and to still hold him accountable for the violence that he perpetuates in the world. The same is true of Barack Obama. Empathizing with people that you are in a conflict with is a difficult and invaluable skill. It is one of the changing frames that has helped me the most in transforming conflict. Being able to imagine what it is like to be another person, to feel what they feel, is a humanizing experience. It's usually made harder if you don't have a particularly deep relationship with the other person. It's a lot easier if you can actually talk to the person and ask them how they feel. But that is something that can feel pretty difficult sometimes. Now we're going to look at some examples of conflict. But before we start, I want to talk a little bit about myself. I mentioned before that I was conflict avoidant for most of my life. Well, so was my whole family. So are a lot of families. And it turns out that avoiding conflicts doesn't actually make them go away. My family had a lot of conflicts, although probably not more than most people. And we never talked about them. I don't actually know anyone who talked about conflict when I was growing up. I'm pretty sure the only place I heard the word was on the news talking about international situations. My parents got married about a year before I was born. It was a second marriage for both of them, and they explicitly agreed that they would never talk about politics or religion. I mention this not to disparage my parents, who I know were doing the best that they knew how, but to indicate just how strong and deep my family was uh, committed to avoid, avoiding conflict. My parents literally never discussed politics or religion when I was growing up. And when my younger sister and I would fight as kids, my mom used to say, will this matter 10 years from now? She saw it as a way of trying to get us to see perspective, right? I believe that that's what she thought. 
But the effect was dismissive, and it only temporarily suppressed conflict because we didn't have any other skills to respond to it. We didn't know how to work through our conflicts, and my mom didn't know how to show us. I think this is a pretty common situation, and there is a cultural tendency to avoid conflicts, which makes them more entrenched. Doing differently requires a paradigm shift. Now Shayla is going to share her current situation. My husband is a practicing Muslim. When we got together in 2001, I was Catholic. He didn't consider our religious differences a big problem because we both believed in God and intended to raise our children to believe in God. I did consider our religious differences a problem, but the relationship took precedence. I had already begun questioning my faith in God ever since I read Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. And when my faith became an obstacle to a solid relationship, it began to recede into the background. However, I may not have clearly explained that to him at the time. In any case, in 2003, we got married. For several years, I was without a religion. Gradually, by around 2010, I realized I was an atheist. I didn't tell my husband to avoid upsetting him. Then, in late 2012, I found Wes. Now, to my husband, Wes is a problem, because if it wasn't for Wes corrupting me, maybe I would still be Catholic. You see how avoiding conflict did not help me in this case? The main issue now is that he wants our children to grow up believing in God, and I don't believe in God anymore. Obviously, West members differ on their belief in God. Everyone is welcome here. As an atheist, I feel welcome here, and I feel that West has been an extremely positive influence on me and my children. But in my personal life, I'm concerned that if my children at some point start questioning the existence of God, my husband will unfairly blame Wes and perhaps stop allowing them to come here. Thank you, Sheila. So she's had this conflict for more than a decade. And as, as she mentioned, avoiding it hasn't really helped her, her situation. So I'm going to say something that sounds a little obvious, but the longer a conflict has been happening and has gone unaddressed, the harder it can be to begin to address it. I know that she's probably hoping I have a magic answer to give her (laughs) to transform her conflict, but I don't have any magic. I do have some ideas. One thing that I would think about is what it means to your husband that someone believes in God. I grew up in a very Christian place, and I know that many times, whether or not someone believed in God or belonged to a particular religion, was used as a symbol or a placeholder for a lot of other assumptions that people made about that person. I don't know if that's a particular issue for your husband, but I do know that there's a lot more attached to that, that belief and that desire for a belief in God than what he has said to you and what you've said to him. And that beginning to talk about that, what's underneath that, is is the key to transforming the conflict. The other thing that I would say is that it would be good to talk to him, but in a way which lessens the anxiety and the potential for reactivity. For you, that might mean just hiring a babysitter and going to your favorite relaxing place in nature to talk. Or it might mean contacting a counselor who can help you to talk through this together. I'm going to guess that you're going to want someone who is experienced at this, given the sensitive nature and how long it's been going on. 
So I'm going to talk about my own conflict about, around religion that I experienced. I was at college. It was at college that I met my husband, my now husband, Andrew. As we were getting to know each other, he mentioned that spirituality and his connection to his idea of God was very important to him. So we had a really big conflict because of this. At the time, I couldn't even hear the words God or spirituality without wanting to run away, literally wanting to run away. But our relationship was very important to us. I was willing to try to desensitize myself to the topics of religion and spirituality so that he could share that part of himself with me. At the time, we didn't have any skills or ways of being in a relationship other than what we learned from our family of origin. We hadn't been in any counseling or read any books or been to workshops, so we were stumbling along trying to figure things out. So what I came up with was that I would say, okay, we can talk about this for five minutes, (laughs) and then that's it for today. So he would talk for five minutes, and at the beginning I would watch the clock, (laughs) try to listen, but just really couldn't wait for it to be over. And then the next day, all right, five more minutes. It wasn't satisfactory for either of us. But we were committed to the relationship and trying this process that we came up with. Gradually from doing this, it became 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, and so on over the course of several years. Now we can talk about religion and spirituality all day. This process, combined with a couple of years of therapy, which helped me identify and articulate my own emotional states, helped to transform the conflict in our relationship and much of my experience of conflict with religion more broadly. So I want to say right now that it's okay to feel however you feel about conflict. We all probably know of at least one situation where conflict resulted in something really bad happening. It makes sense to feel scared or anxious about a conflict. But we don't have to stay there. We can realize that this is an emotional response that we can work through. I still sometimes feel an inkling of dread when I realize that I'm in a conflict. And what I do is I try to sit with that feeling and just remember that I have found pretty consistently when I actually talk to people about the conflict that our relationship gets deeper, we get to know each other better, and it gives me extra strength and practice for the next time. I see conflict as good, but that doesn't mean that working through them is easy or straightforward. It also doesn't mean that I know what to do in the moment on every occasion. So now Shirley is going to share a situation from her life. Hi. When my husband and I moved into our house in 1978, um, the whole neighborhood was had a grid of old chain-link fences, and they were already getting rusty in 1978, um, and they didn't get any prettier as time went by. One day, my daughter and I were sitting, just, just a couple of years ago, my daughter and I were sitting on my back screen porch, and I noticed some workers in the yard, you know, this was the, the backyard, and they were doing something to the fence. So I got up, and I went over and I said, what are you doing? And they said, well, the the homeowner here is putting in a new fence. And I said, well, that's the first I've heard of it. They looked a little uh, 
chagrined, but they said, well, he's at home right now, but you can talk to him when he comes home. And I was so shocked. I didn't really know what to do. I called a realtor friend of mine, and he said, well, it's very difficult to determine who owns a fence um, in a neighborhood this old. So that didn't really help. So I just kind of let it happen. Um, I went back out and said, what kind of a fence is he going to put up? Well, he was going to put up a six-foot wooden fence. It was actually quite a nice fence. But one of the main problems, besides the fact that this totally changed the character of the neighborhood, which was a, you know, chat over the back fence kind of neighborhood, was the fence he was putting up was six feet tall, so you couldn't talk over it anymore. And even worse for me, the yards there don't quite match up. So I have two-thirds of my backyard is a six-foot cedar fence, and one-third of my backyard is a rusty chain-link fence that still goes with the rest of the neighborhood, which is a little odd. Um, I was very angry with him because I thought he was rude and audacious to do this without ever speaking to me or consulting me. After the fact, after it was too late, I learned that chain link fences, when they're put in, whoever puts them in and owns the fence, the post is on the back side of the fence. So it was my fence. And I wasn't even really sure how I felt about it. It wasn't that I loved that old rusty chain link fence. It was just that I felt like in the moment... I should have been able to either make him stop until make them stop until I had time to think about it or do something and I did nothing. So except to really hate he and his wife and really think they were awful people for doing this. And later I found out from another neighbor that his wife also thought it was not a good idea, which made me like her a little better. <laughs> And then I found out that the reason he did it was because they had a small child who was about ready to come out and play in the yard, and so it was his sense of needing safety because there's a lot of dogs in the neighborhood and everything, but that really didn't make me like him very much better because I still thought he should have talked to me. Um, I guess I'm still a little bit angry with him. Um, A year or so later, they divorced. I don't know what that had to do with anything. I'm sure it wasn't the fence, but... um, I'm still very angry with myself because in the moment I sat there and let it happen. And I might very well have said, yeah, maybe that's, you know, maybe part of a nice fence is better than no nice fence. But um, I don't think so because I can't talk to my other neighbors anymore because I can't see through where the fence is. And uh, I've actually never talked to her, the lady who lives in the house, because I can't see over the fence. So I still have some anger and frustration about it and wished I had dealt with it differently, and I think I'm, I am very conflict-averse, and uh, this has given me food to think about. So. Thank you, Shirley. So Shirley is still being affected by this situation several years afterward, and I'm imagining that seeing the fence is a visual reminder of the confusion and inaction and anger that she has. And the fence itself, its height and the opaqueness, has made it harder for her to connect with her neighbor. So there are a couple of things that occur to me. One is that it would be good to try and talk with your neighbor. Perhaps, since the fence is a barrier, you could send her a letter and invite her to coffee. Especially if it's true that the woman didn't want the fence to begin with, and her husband did. That can be a point of bonding for you. But even if Shirley doesn't want to pursue a relationship with this neighbor... 
There are things that might make her feel better about the fence and about the emotions connected with the fence. Perhaps you could create some weatherproof artwork, collages, and hang them on the fence so that you would see those more than you would see the fence. And that that association with a positive outcome of, of a positive experience might help you to transform your emotions even if it doesn't actually do anything about what happened. So, what does this all mean, and what does it have to do with West or ethical culture? Speaking for myself and from my own experience, I now find that not talking to someone who I'm experiencing difficult feelings with because of a conflict feels uncomfortable, almost deceitful. And conversely, talking to someone, even though it feels really hard at times, feels like I'm respecting our relationship and seems to be a more ethical way of being in the world. Creating a world where love and justice cross all borders will require a dramatic change in the way that we collectively approach conflicts. If we keep doing the same things we've always done, it will keep creating the same world. But this feels like a lot, doesn't it? If you acknowledge that life is filled with conflicts and that you begin to believe that moving towards them and working on them is something that will work better for you, it kind of means you have to work on them. It might feel like an obligation, and that might be uncomfortable. But rather than see this as a big, overwhelming thing, try to think back to the meditation that we had. Were you able to feel something change after you imagined talking to the person that you were in a conflict with? Even if you weren't at the time, try and imagine now that that would be possible. If you took the biggest conflict in your personal life and were able to change it and to learn and grow from it with the people in that relationship, how would that feel? Would that be motivating? Can you imagine the good feelings if everyone in this room were able to do that? It's amazing, right? Now here's where I give a word of caution. If you are new to talking about conflicts and moving toward them, I don't recommend that you start with the biggest one in your life. I recommend that you start with the smallest ones. The ones that have lower risk and less anxiety attached to them. After you've worked through a few of those and gathered additional skills and confidence, then you can move on to the bigger ones. At least, that is what I found worked really well for me. I have found the last few years to be profoundly transformative in my life. I am not the same person that I was in 2010 when I started graduate school. And some of it has been very hard and very rewarding. I wrote a haiku as an extra credit assignment for my first conflict class, which was supposed to summarize my philosophy of conflict transformation. So I will share it with you now. Metamorphosis. Breaking to become better versions of ourselves. To me, this process of changing frames of expanding the ideas of what conflict and violence are, 
of seeking creative possibilities that haven't existed before, and of practicing empathy and rehumanization, our ways of seeking my best self and the best in others. It requires some struggle and perhaps pain, but breaking free from the cocoon of violence that I was raised in and seeing the world for what it is and what it could be is the most fulfilling journey that I can imagine. We all have experience with conflict, and most of us are beginners at creating peace. I hope you will join me on this journey and that we'll figure out how to do this together.